You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Um, today's Bible reading comes from James chapter 3, verses 5 to 10. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. This is the word of the Lord. To begin with, thanks so much for having me. Um, I love West. Uh, I haven't had a chance to be here very often, but um, since this church was planted, it just been cheering. Luke was uh, one of the ones really helping us plant in Geelong before this happened. And I just love, it's great to be here too and to see and to imagine and to dream. Um, yeah, we're in Geelong. We've had a building for quite a while. I just feel feel the pain of, of constantly moving in and out. I remember what that was like. So yeah, we're praying for you and uh, hoping to see whatever happens. But That's by way of introduction. 2017, seems a long time ago, doesn't it? 2017. But 2017, there's a moment which you might, uh, if you you are looking at the notes, you might see that image. But it was an ad that was launched and it was sponsored by Cooper's Beer and the Bible Society. Kind of an interesting mix, isn't it? And it was an ad that was entitled Keeping It Light. Anyone remember that ad? A few of us do. It was quite a simple, well, you're going to hear why you might remember it. Um, this ad featured two federal Liberal Party politicians having a discussion about same-sex marriage. Uh, one of them um, was a guy called Tim Wilson. Uh, he was a, a federal member here in Victoria until the last election. Uh, the other was a, another federal member called Andrew Hastie. Uh, Tim is a gay guy and he was having, he was advocating uh, for same-sex marriage, saying it was a good idea. Uh, Andrew happens to be a Christian uh, politician and he was advocating against same-sex marriage. And the two of them were sitting on stools a little bit like this, or I think there was, might have been even on a couch, and, and they had the, the Cooper's beer in front of them. And the whole idea of the advertisement was to say, let's have a mature and respectful discussion about an, if, an issue in which we disagree. What could go wrong? <laughs> well, a lot, as it turned out. Um, that advertisement caused a furor on social media and other ways. It, it, um, Cooper's beer was boycotted by some people. The, um, their, their advertisements were vandalised. Um, some pubs took their beer out of the pub. Um, and actually, Tim um, Wilson was actually accused of being a turncoat and a, a, a betraying the cause. It, it was a massive, massive kickback against Cooper's beer uh, to the end that eventually, uh, sometime later, the CEOs of Cooper's, which is a Christian-owned company, uh, they actually apologised and uh, pulled the ad. 
Now, the message that came from this, this was just a, a little ad really, but the message that came from it was loud and it was clear. Uh, in Australian society, it is no longer acceptable to disagree about an issue like homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And those who continue to disagree will be punished. Now, I know uh, we have come to call this in the years since 2017. I don't think I'd heard of this term in 2017. I've heard of it now. We've come to call it cancel culture. Cancel culture. Um, this is how the dictionary defines cancel culture. I suspect that all of us now in 2022, we know what cancel culture is, but this is how they define it. Cancel culture refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for or cancelling public figures and companies after they've done or said something now considered objectionable or offensive. Uh, that's cancel culture. And I begin with that illustration of Cooper's beer and the definition of cancel culture, uh, speaking about free speech, because I believe cancel culture is one of the greatest threats, probably the greatest threat to free speech in our time. And I'm going to explain why. But before we look at that in detail, we need to clear something up. Um, the restriction of free speech through cancel culture is not something that is only targeted at Christians. True, sometimes Christians are in the crosshairs for things that are now objectionable, but it's certainly not only Christians and it's certainly not only same-sex marriage. So, for example, J.K. Rowling. Um, anyone like to tell me, J.K. Rowling, who's she? Harry Potter. Yeah, she's not Harry Potter, but she, but she is Harry Potter. She wrote it. She, she is Harry Potter. Um, J.K. Rowling uh, is not a Christian. Uh, she's actually a very strong proponent of same-sex marriage, but she did something in 2017, same year as that ad, which I so sympathise with because it, uh, this is me all over. She, was, she saw a, a tweet on Twitter about uh, a trans issue and she went, oh, I want to screenshot that because I'd like to research it to more. So she thought she screenshotted it. She actually liked it. Anyone else done that? Um, I would have. I haven't, but I'm sure I would. Um, and she says this in 2017, that single accidental like was deemed evidence of wrong think and a persistent low level of harassment began, she says. That was 2017. In 2022, or actually 2021, last year, this is what she wrote. She said this, listen, the non-Christian woman, over the last few years, I've watched appalled as many, many women have been subject to campaigns of intimidation, which range from being hounded on social media, the targeting of their employers, all the way up to doxing and direct threats of violence, including rape. None of these women are protected in the way I am. They and their families have been put into a state of fear and distress for no other reason than that they refuse to uncritically accept that the socio-political concept of gender identity should replace that of sex. J.K. Rowling has been cancelled because she doesn't adopt the majority position on transgender. But I don't know if you're, are you allowed to have a favourite victim of cancel culture? Are you? I've got to confess, I do, because it's none other than the, uh, the winsome, always winsome, Richard uh, Dawkins. Uh, does anyone know Professor Richard Dawkins? Yeah, a lot of you, he, he's the always grumpy atheist professor who's made a career out of, um, out of trying to deconstruct Christianity. He's a professor at Oxford. He's always speaks his mind freely. He's always grumpy. And he, I'll get, this, this, is what, this is what he said from one of his books about Christians. This is standard Richard Dawkins fair. Listen to this. 
Big breath. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Get that? Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomistic, capricically malevolent, bully. <laughs> Come on, Richard, tell us what you really think about the God of Christianity. That's just standard Richard Dawkins fare, right? And if you've been a Christian Oh, you've certainly been engaged in those kind of reading. It's just standard Richard Dawkins. He's always like that, you, you know. But, well, actually in 1996, Richard Dawkins, for comments like that, was given the American Humanist of the Year Award. You know, very coveted. I don't know if anyone, anyone got that award here? No, I don't think so. No, neither have I. Um, but he was awarded that in 1996. Last year, he had it stripped from him, publicly stripped from him. That withdrawn, that, that reward is withdrawn. He was cancelled. Why? What can he, what can he say that's more offensive than what he already says? This is what he said. Quote, is trans woman a woman? Purely semantic. If you divine by chromosomes, no. If by self identification, yes. I call her she out of courtesy. For that, Richard Dawkins was cancelled. So cancel culture, free speech. In a moment, we're going to consider together um, what a Christian response might be to cancel culture and to free speech. Before we do that, and this is really important, out of Christian charity and out of curiosity, I want to spend some time with you saying, well, what are the arguments in favour of limiting free speech? What are the arguments for cancel culture? And I want to try and do this fairly, right? I want to present these arguments, I think, as, as strongly as I can. So what are the arguments against free speech? Well, what is free speech? Again, you say, Andrew, it's free speech. Like, it's pretty obvious. But here's a definition. Free speech uh, can be defined as the right to express, publish, and receive information, opinions, and other communication without interference from any source. Free speech. Um, the, U- the United Nations defines it as a human right. So in the Declaration of Human Rights, it includes the right of free speech. It says this, this is the UN Declaration, everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. And uh, someone who's a proponent of, of cancel culture would say, yeah, that's good. I agree with free speech. I agree with the, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. However, the right to free speech has never been absolute, ever. No one can say what they want to say all the time, irrespective of consequences. You say, uh, I'll give you an example. So if you were sitting here tonight, and this is a sermon illustration, please don't, uh, don't, don't do this at home, you know, like, right? And you were to shout, fire! You haven't got a legal or moral right to do that because if in a crowded theatre, there's many cases throughout history of hundreds of people being trampled to death by false calls. Or, or you're in the airport, right? And you go like, I've always wanted to do this. Boom! You know, like, see how that goes down. Yes, I've got the right, the freedom of speech to cry bomb. Yeah, but it's going to cost you. Because that, you know, um, a proponent of cancel culture would say, it's actually like what Coopers were doing. They were suggesting that homosexuality was morally debatable. That's like crying fire in a crowded theatre or bomb in an airport. 
that kind of language results in people getting hurt. I mean, how would you feel if you were a same-sex attracted person and you watched that ad where it could be discussed publicly and a suggestion that homosexuality might be wrong? Or in the case of Dawkins and, and J.K. Rowling, how dare they say things about that that, that discredit a trans woman's identity? That's hurtful. And in the same way that society has, has always restricted free speech in times of war, for example, um, by you're not just allowed to say whatever you want in a times of, times of war, free speech is restricted. In the same way, cancel culture is restricting free speech because it's protecting people. So that, that's the main part of their argument. And, and, and a proponent of, of cancel culture would say, here's the rub, right? You can claim to have free speech but often that free speech comes across as hateful and bigoted. It's used as a, a cover and a camouflage for discrimination. And they would say, it's not on. And this actually is the explicit um, argument or reasoning that came from the, in the Victorian government's uh, explanation for why they introduced the suppression bill or the, the, the conversion therapy bill that became law a couple of months ago here in Victoria. Uh, they, that was the exact argument they gave. Um, and you say, well, what does that bill do? Um, um, if after the service uh, or at any time during the week, some, one of you came to, to Pastor Luke or Pastor Coy and said, look, I'm struggling with same-sex identification. And if you are, by the way, you're so welcome. We've got a bunch of people in Geelong who are so, so welcome. Yeah, th this is this is your, I hope this is your home. But so you came and said, look, I'm struggling with this. Would you please pray for me that God would remove those desires? If Luke was to agree to pray for you as you requested, he's breaking the law and that comes with significant fines and jail time. I said, but the person asked him to do. Yes, but the Victorian government's rationale is that if Luke was to agree to do as he was requested, that would cause harm to the person who was same-sex attracted or the person that was gender dysphoric. And the Victorian government will say, yes, we're impinging on free speech and freedom of religion, but we're doing it to stop people get hurt. It's not just, this is a big issue. I hope I've stated those arguments as fairly and strongly as I can. They would be arguments why you'd say free speech is, needs to be restricted, why you would say that cancel culture is a good thing. I don't agree with those arguments. I want to show you why. Before we, before we look at actually the, what the Bible says, which is that's where we're getting and that's where we need to rest because anything else is just my ideas, right? And I don't want that to be all you get tonight, my ideas. You're going to need a lot more than that. But before we get to what the Bible says, I, I just want to explain, I suppose, three reasons why this is really dangerous. Um, and these are reasons that are not specifically Christian. I think they apply to everyone. Three reasons you might even think about, think, is this true? So number one, free speech is probably the most important issue of any of the issues that we're looking at in the left and right um, series. For, I think Luke told me before, I think it was the third most popular one that you voted for, for us to look at as a church. It came third. Probably should have come first. And I'll say why. Because on the issue of free speech hinges our ability to discuss all the other ones. It, 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 I think about this in a, in a political sense. We live in a democracy, right? 
Ideally, the parliament functions by not just saying we've got the numbers and we're going to roll through whatever legislation we want, which is sometimes how it does function. But ideally, the, the parliament in a Westminster system of democracy functions by different groups debating an issue, contrary opinions getting heard and getting debated. And in the end, hopefully, you get a good law. You get a good decision. So um, anyone here bought a car recently? <laughs> yeah, a couple. Yeah, I, my son's 18 and over the last months we've been going about finding him a car. Now, imagine I looked at a certain car that I was interested in and I went to the review sites and I, I ticked the thing, hide all negative reviews. Just show me the positive reviews. And imagine I went and I read page after page of positive reviews about this car. Didn't want to read the negative ones because it would make buy the car. Would you buy a car like that? You might. But you might regret it a few kilometres down the road. But this is actually what cancel culture can do to really important decisions in society. It says that only one opinion is tolerated. So let's go back to the transgender issue. I mentioned how it applies to pastor, pastors, the, um, the suppression bill here in Victoria. But it's not just pastors, it's psychiatrists and psychologists and counsellors. So five years ago, if you came to a psychologist or a counsellor and you were feeling gender dysphoric, um, and if you are, by the way, once again, you are so welcome. Uh, we have people in our church in Geelong who are going through this. It's a really difficult situation to be going through. So five years ago, you went to the psychiatrist and the psychologist. They, according to their manual of psychiatry and psychology, would say, well, what we need to do is help your mind conform to the objective reality, reality of your biology. You, your mind is out of sync with your body. We're going to help you try to, to work and fix your mind. That's just five years ago. Today, for a counsellor or a psychologist, a psychiatrist, to do that is a criminal offence. You can't do that. There are significant penalties for doing it. And the, the rationale is we're stopping people getting hurt. It's not a good thing to make a decision of this magnitude on only one source, only the positive reviews. It's not a good thing. So I'll give you an example. Um, Carrie, on YouTube, there's a whole bunch of stories of people that have transitioned, not Christians, but have then later on de-transitioned. Maybe you've seen it. It's tragic. I'll quote for you one, a young woman called Carrie who transitioned from being a 17-year-old female to male at 17 years old. And then at 22, detransition. De this is what she says. I want to ask you how many other medical conditions are there where you can walk into the doctor's office, tell them that you have a certain condition which has no objective test, which can be caused by trauma or mental health issues or societal factors, and receive life-altering medications on your say-so. How many conditions? She then goes on to say this, and this is tragic. This is the real outcome of my transition. I'm a real live 22-year-old woman with a scarred chest and a broken voice and a five o'clock shadow because I couldn't face the idea of growing up to be a woman. That's my reality. Was it really best for Carrie or for society as a whole that she was only given one side of a complex issue? Was that really, was cancel culture really helping avoid harm in her life? That's the first reason. It causes a dysfunction in our decision-making. Secondly, 
cancel culture has some political impl implications which are serious. So historically, the state, the government, is given by its citizens uh, responsibility for protecting life and liberty and property. That's what we want the government to do, those things, right? But now the state is also given responsibility of protecting people's feelings and, and stopping people getting hurt. And you say, well, that, that's, that's a good thing, isn't it? It's actually not politically because we live in a democracy where people have different opinions and what the government comes in and says, well, we actually know what is best for everybody and one day you'll thank us for it even if you disagree now. That's why we're, we're not going to talk about one side of an issue because we know what's best. That's actually how totalitarianism begins. Um, I'm, I don't think I'm being, uh, I, I studied undergraduate and postgraduate uh, political science and international relations. That is what happened with communism last century. Communism said, we know what is best for you. And if you don't know and you don't agree, we'll send you to the gulag, but one day you'll thank us because we know what is best. And you say to me, Andrew, we're not there yet. That's pretty extreme. I agree with you. We're not there yet in Victoria, but there are political implications. It's, it's like hopping onto a train line, right? You, you don't automatically arrive at the destination. We are not at the destination of totalitarianism by any means. Here we are sitting freely in a building where I'm explicitly disagreeing with a piece of government le legislation, right? That's still a significant degree of freedom. But my point is that politically we're on, we're on the train line. And the reason is because if you close off free speech, and you start to restrict it, you start to say what you can say and what you can't say, free speech is one of the best protections we have against totalitarianism. And this kind of cancel culture erodes it. So there's the political reason. Thirdly, cancel culture actually destroys what it claims to protect. Right? What does cancel culture ca claim to protect? Diversity. It says you can't have opinions that um, are going to be harmful to other people because you're going to wreck diversity. You're going to make them feel unwelcome. You're going to, you're going to question who they are. But in a democracy, you know, just looking around you, looking around, look around you now, I'm looking at you and going like, you are very different. You, some of you are very different from me in lots of different ways and I'm different from you. Some of you have come from different, different backgrounds and ethnicities. You have different cultures. That's good. You're different. You're genuinely different. But what cancel culture does, it's, it's not a call for diversity. It's actually an implacable desire for uniformity. It wants everyone to be the same. In the notes, there's a, uh, a, a cartoon that I included there. Someone sent me uh, on um, text message throughout the week. Well, I haven't got it in front of me. Can anyone read that out nice and loud what it says? Yeah. Did you hear that? It's someone's funny cartoon. I don't know where it came from. Um, but it's making the point that cancel culture claims to be in favour of diversity, but in actuality, it shuts it down. It says that everybody's got to think the same. And if you still doubt me, um, has anyone followed the, the case of the Manly Seven? You know who I'm talking about? Uh, some of you are nodding. A lot of you are shaking your heads. But uh, I think it would be maybe four or five weeks ago now, um, seven rugby league players playing uh, for the Manly Football Club in Sydney um, their club ordered them all to wear um, jerseys when they ran out that had the rainbow flag across them. 
And these uh, seven players who, who were Christians, they said, we don't want to do that because that, that we, we feel that's, that's not who we are. We want, and so they quietly wanted to sit out the game. But people were saying, how dare they? How dare they not wear rainbow? How, 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 how hateful and bigoted, how, how non-inclusive. But you just got to flip that for a moment and imagine that imagine the Manly Football Club was owned by a, a rich Christian a billionaire would hopefully be giving lots of money to, to do the building here as well. But, but imagine, imagine he was, right? He owned this club and he went, right, I'll tell you what, everybody in my club is going to wear a, a jersey this week when we go that says, John 3.16, Jesus loves you. You know, imagine that. How would that go down? People go like, you can't do that. That is so uninclusive. You see the point? It, cancel culture claims to promote diversity. It actually only promotes uniformity. It wants everybody to be the same. So those are three reasons. As I said, none of them are Christian oriented. But now what I want to do is where, where this is where the meat happens. And I want to go, okay, there might be good political reasons and, and good um, logic reasons why Christians would be su- suspicious of cancel culture. But what does the Bible say about free speech? Well, let's begin with some, actually in the beginning of the Bible. Um, first book of the Bible is Genesis. I'm relieved. I was just getting worried about West biblical literacy. <laughs> no, very good answer, very quick. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 says this, And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God creates with speech. Bible insists on that in Genesis. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let's make man in our image after our likeness. God creates human beings with speech and he gives us speech. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, it talks about that out of the ground, God creates all the animals and Eve's not on the scene yet. And it's like I'm sitting on the school stool and, and God gets the parade of animals and I go, uh, hippopotamus, uh, cat, giraffe, you know, and God, that's symbolic of the fact that God has given humanity, you and I, free speech that is truly free. We, we can name those animals. We have a God-like quality that's given to us by God. Our free speech is a good gift of God. And you say, well, it doesn't always seem so good now. Why? Because we don't live in Genesis 1 anymore. We live in Genesis 3, which is a world that is broken and have you thought about how the world breaks uh, in the Bible? You know, why is our world like it is? Because men and women sin against God. And how do they sin? Well, look, Genesis 3.1, l- listen to the temptation. And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Begins by questioning God's speech. And as they rebel, then the world becomes a world where the, the man accuses the woman, the woman accuses the man. There's the, our speech becomes corrupt. But God's never content to let it stay that way. I said, you know, we live in Genesis 3. That's not really true. We live in the New Testament, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? Well, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Matthew 4, 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming 
the gospel of the kingdom. God comes in the person of Jesus, the Word incarnate, and He comes with free speech, calling you and I to come back into relationship with Him. And then Acts 5.20, I love this. Um, the, the, the authorities have told the apostles, stop speaking about Jesus. And an angel comes to them and says these words, now go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. You see that? Free speech is God-given. It's beautiful. The Bible's got a massive emphasis on it. So that's the biblical overlay. Now, practically, what does it mean for you and I as Christians in a world of cancel culture and with free speech? How do we respond? This is, this is where we get to the grid. So I've got a couple of things. And um, then after that, we'll have a chance to ask some questions. You can disagree with me. But th- this is where I, I think a couple of the real rubber hits the road issues are. I think that the, the foundation of the fact that God gives to us humanity free speech, that we're created in his image, means that we should respect the free speech of others. Uh, I don't just mean our Christian rights to say what we think. I think Christians should be advocates for free speech for everybody. And you say, well, of course we should, and I hope you think that. But that's not always a logical development. Um, anyone heard of Selman Rushdie? Yeah. Um, when I was uh, speaking this sermon in Geelong, actually, uh, one of the guys in, in the Q&A said, um, what do you think about what happened to Selman Rushdie today? And I was like, I don't know what happened to Selman Rushdie. Can you tell me? And he said, Selman Rushdie, who, who wrote some um, verses which uh, some Muslim people felt to be heretical, was listed on a death list and had been for decades. Someone tried to kill him and he was in hospital, lost his eye. I think, I think he made it through. I think he's still alive. But that's the opposite of what Christians should be. Um, as a Christian, I don't think we've got anything to fear from free speech. Uh, John uh, Dixon's an author and historian, and he's got in one of his books, he's got this analogy and he says, imagine the church, for example, was a famous theatre, right? Uh, not theatre, an art gallery. And that you came into this art gallery because there was a big sign on the door that said, this is the best, or you're going to see the best picture ever painted. The best work of art in all of history is on display in this church. You need to come and see it. And let's say that this was a massive church and there were hundreds of different pictures and you walk through the doors and this picture that was described as being the best ever painted is in the spotlight. All the lights are shining on it. Every other picture, all the other hundreds of pictures are in the darkness. And you'd walk in and John Dick, John Dick said, you'd be suspicious, wouldn't you? You go, hang on. If this, if this picture is really the best picture ever painted, why do all the others have to be in the darkness? Let, let it stand for itself. Shine the light on all of them. It'll be apparent to everyone what is the best work of art. And let me tell you, Jesus Christ is the best picture ever drawn. And I'll tell you why, because it's he's the image of the invisible God. And, and because Jesus Christ is so beautiful and so wonderful and so perfect, Christians, we don't need to try and say nasty things about other people are not true or try and stop their ability to speak what they believe to be true because our beautiful Saviour stands on his own two feet. We don't need to be ashamed. This is why I can say, Richard Dawkins, go for it. Say the nasty things that you do. That's not my problem. My God can stand on his own two feet. But second, while I think Christians should advocate for free speech, there's a qualification here. Like, And this is really important. Free speech cannot be... It may be a legal and a civil right. 
it cannot be an absolute moral right for the Christian. Free speech for the Christian cannot be an absolute moral right. You know why? Because it can never be a moral right to do wrong. You understand what I'm saying? In the Bible, the Bible is very clear that our speech is a problem. Uh, So James, the reading that we had before says this, the tongue, your speech and my speech is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We may have a legal and a civil right to free speech, but we never have a moral right to say speech that is evil or is morally wrong. Um, In the Bible, uh, free speech means that uh, it never means that Christians can say gossip behind one another's back. That's a sin. It doesn't mean that that Christians can um, teach what is sinful or what is evil, that I could stand up the front of the church today and speak to you words that were not true about God. I never have the moral right to do that, to say words that are wrong because heresy is by definition calling good what God calls sin. I haven't got the right to do that. And the Bible tells us that if you've got someone who's speaking false teaching as a heretic, they need to not be given a platform. They need to be removed. It actually says if you've got someone in your church who's constantly divisive, they're talking behind people's back, they're backstabbing others, and and they won't respond after they're spoken to one, two, three times, the Bible says in the end, you need to get rid of them. Not get rid of them in the mafia kind of mob term. You need to ask them to leave. Free speech matters. So in, in, a, in a way, it's I'll advocate for Richard Dawkins to say whatever he wants. But you know, I would advocate for you, if I get up the front and say to you words that are not true, then you should challenge me. Because those words are not, I don't have the freedom, I don't have the moral right to do wrong with my tongue. That, it's a big, big speech. And the big picture of free speech for the Christian, Jesus makes it, man, if ever there was someone who knew how to use his tongue, it was Jesus Christ, wasn't it? This is what he said. And every time I read these words, it makes me, makes me get the shivers. Matthew 12, this is Jesus speaking. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Let that sink in. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. There's an obligation for us Christians to use our speech well and carefully, every careless word. And that just doesn't mean the things we say. It means the things we text. It means the things we Twitter, the things we post. Christians need to be very careful of our words. Now, now thirdly, um, those of us who are Christians need to think about the context in which we exercise free speech. For example, where, where are we as a culture right now? Um, Steve McAlpine is a blogger and a, an author. He's got some really, really helpful illustrations that he talks about two cities that we see in the Bible, very different cities. Uh, the first one is the city of Athens. So if you read the book of Acts, you'll know that Paul and the other couple of the other apostles, they come into Athens and, and, uh, and, and the people, you know, they're at the front debating ideas and they go, Really? You got some new ideas? Come up the front. You know, l- l- tell everybody about your new idea. Tell everyone about your God. And then Paul does. And then they say something. Oh, I think he's good. Something he's stupid. He's mad. You know, but they have a discussion, right? 
that's the city of Athens. And if you're my age or older, um, we kind of grew up in this city. Uh, I went to university at UNSW in Oxford 20, 30 years ago. And in university, that's what it was like. I mean, I did an arts degree. Some of you, you know, did serious degrees, but I did an arts degree. And um, I remember some really boring political science lectures. Or, or, uh, yeah, you know, you're sitting at the back of the lecture and the guy next to you goes like, oh man, what are you doing on the weekend when this is over? It's like, oh, I'm going to go to church. I said, what? Why'd you go to church? You don't believe all that rubbish, do you? I said, yeah, I do actually. Um, I said, why do you believe that? Well, it's about Jesus. And I said, why well, don't believe Jesus? Yeah, well, Jesus. And then, oh, lecture's finished. Um, oh, let's go and get a Coopers together. You know, like th that was the kind of world, right? It's Athens. Um, Steve McAlpine makes the point that we don't live in Athens anymore. We live in another city in the Bible, which is called Babylon. Uh, Babylon we read of in the Old Testament and New Testament, but in, in the book of Daniel, you might remember that the Jewish exiles are taken to live in Babylon and, and in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this massive golden statue and then he says to everybody in his empire, when the, when the band plays, you worship that statue and you've got freedom. You can worship the statue or you can choose to burn alive. Your choice. And the point that Steve McAlpine makes is that Babylon is not interested in your ideas, it's interested in your conformity. It wants you to believe and to act in the same way as everybody else. Um, I, Steve McAlpine uh, in 2017 in the same-sex marriage debate, after this ad actually, uh, the ad, the Cooper's ad, he wrote this and I'll, as I read this quote, ask yourself five years, six years down the track, was he right? Is what he says. What we've learned in the past few years, and it's only a few years, is that secularism has bottomed out and lo and behold, it has bottomed out on the issue of sex. I think I'm going to start calling it secularism. And to that end, secularism is not the friend it seemed to be and which we as a minority in Australia at least assumed it would always be, allowing us to play our marbles in the corner of the schoolyard. It's going to start playing rough throwing its weight around and stealing lunch money. Put simply, secularism is going to play the playground bully, and especially in the areas of sex. I don't know about you, but I think he was right. And I think we're seeing that increasingly. Free speech is no longer free. If it ever was, it's costly. But fourthly and finally, Christians, I believe in Scripture very clearly, we need to speak the truth freely. I actually agree with J.K. Rowling. I find it humorous that in this sermon I've quoted J.K. Rowling to C.S. Lewis zero. Um, it's a weird sermon. But um, J.K. Rowling makes the point, and I, I agree with it completely, that disagreeing with someone is not hatred of someone. That you can actually disagree in love. And Christians, I think we agree because we, we model our lives on our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who, who dwells within us. We could be hopefully becoming more like him day by day. Jesus was not afraid to disagree with people. He disagreed with people all the time and he did it very forthrightly at times. But Jesus was the most loving person and he did that in love. Um, I don't know how many of you guys have heard of Izzy Falau. Yeah, heard of Izzy Falau. If you, if you haven't, a famous rugby league player um, who uh, famously tweeted 
um, a paraphrase from of parts of the book of Romans, um, speaking about a long list of sins, including homosexuality, for which people would be separated from God and sent to hell for all eternity. He tweeted that, caused a furor. Was he right? Yeah, some nods. Was he right? I think he was wrong. I'll, I'll come to you why I also think he was right. I think he was wrong because the context in which he put it, it's so hard to explain an issue like that in a tweet. It, it comes across as unloving. It, it does come across as like hateful. It does come across as judgmental. It needs context. And, and, and I, yeah, I, I don't know, probably in, he probably, there's no context he could have put it anyway that wouldn't have come across as hateful to the world in which we live. But I, I didn't like the way that he did it. I, I didn't think that was helpful. But on the other side, was he right? Absolutely he was right. The substance of what he said was absolutely true. And I don't, I mean, Izzy Falau claims that he, he did it in love. And I, if that's the way he did it, I agree with him in that because think about this for a moment. If, if, if those passages are true, like the one that he paraphrased from Romans, and that if, I'll speak directly to you. If you're not yet a Christian here tonight or you wandered far from the Lord or you call yourself a Christian in name only or you're here for some other reason completely, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not like, oh, I got KFC instead of Maccas, right? This is an incident. This is an issue that has profound eternal consequences for you and those consequences are not laughing matters. Jesus himself is absolutely explicit that unless we come to him for salvation, we are separated from God for all of eternity and our end will not be the golf course in the sky or the shopping centre that never ends. It'll be hell. And, and that, is, that is what the Bible everywhere teaches. That is what Jesus taught. That is what Christians have always believed. And follow that through for a moment. If you're a Christian and you believe that, you need to speak the truth. Because the most unloving thing that you could ever do is be at a dinner party or to be at a school or be at a workplace and think, I don't want to offend your feelings by telling you about the truth of Jesus. If, that, if this is true, and it is, that is the most hateful thing you could ever do. Sit next to another being in God's image, have the words of life and the means to speak to them of salvation and not speak because you're afraid of what they would think of you or that they would be offended. Christians need to speak the truth. And you see, the issue in some sense for us as Christians is it's not so much our freedom of speech, our right to say what we, we can say freely because speech for Christians has never been free. It's always come at a cost. Uh, think about the apostles. They said, we're, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to speak what God tells us to do. Did they pay a cost? Was it free speech for them? No. All of them suffered terribly. Most of them were murdered. What about the Christians throughout the decade since? Has it been free? Is it free for Christians now in many parts of the world? It's not free. To speak of Jesus will cost you everything that you have. This is serious. But I don't want us to end pessimistically. I said it's not all about Christians' civil rights to freedom of speech. It's actually about our obligation to speak the truth in love. And I want to close with a quote from a historian, a guy called Oliver O'Donovan. And he is writing about the impact of Christianity on the Roman Empire. And this is what he says. But confronted with the community empowered by God's speech, force 
could extinguish speech only at the cost of investing it with the dignity of martyrdom. It proved impossible in the event for Roman society to refuse an answer to the world that was addressed to it with this seriousness. See what he says? Free speech. That is costly speech. Speaks to a world with a convincing authority and weight that cannot be refused. You and I have got a right to free speech still here. We've got a far greater obligation to speak the truth in love, no matter what the costs. Paul said, Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Until we each stand before the judgment seat, the judgment throne of the living word himself, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, Jesus Christ, because he is God's final word. Musicians are going to come up. I'm going to pray for us. But as they come up, let's, let's sit for a moment in the weight of that and then we'll have a chance to, to discuss. Uh, Father, we want to thank you that we live in a world here in the West, in, in Victoria and Melbourne, where we can still speak freely in so many matters in so many ways. We bring to you our concerns about the erosion of those, those rights and freedoms. We pray, Lord, that you give us wisdom in responding to those. But Father, much more than that, surely we come to you and we ask for the boldness to speak the truth in love, the obligation that we have to speak that truth. And we pray, Lord, that you'd make us as your people uh, not advocating only for, for free speech, but practicing costly speech as those who have gone before us have and as you call us to. Would you help us in this, Lord? We, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.